So this week we're going to be looking at the nature and history of the church. So I thought for our prayer we could actually uh, do the Nicene Creed together. So you can see that on the right side of the page that the deacon made for us the handout. And let's say this all together, shall we? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. All right. If you look carefully at that creed, you will realize that we have gone over nearly every element so far in our class together. Um, it should become illuminated for you, right? The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, that the Son is begotten, not made, but consubstantial with the Father. Right? All of these things that we've discussed, they're at the very foundation of the church. And this week, we want to talk about the fourth line from the bottom. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. These four concepts, unity, holiness, Catholicity, and the apostolic nature of the church. So to start, let's talk about what was Jesus doing after he rose from the dead and before he took off in his ascension. He had 40 days, all right? And it's very interesting because we know that he's appearing to people. And of course, freaking them out, right? That's the first thing. Their freakishness turns to jubilation once they realize he's not a ghost, he's a real guy. And they're amazed. And St. Paul later, about 20 years later, tells us that at that time, he's writing to the Corinthian church, he says there were at that point 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection still alive. Now, the average lifespan is, what, 34 years old about this point? So 20 years later, you still have 500 eyewitnesses. Assume that most of the witnesses would have been adults or close to it. So what was the number when Jesus actually rose from the dead? 1,000? 1,750? Maybe even up to 2,500 people. Essentially, if you think about it, it sounds like Jesus spent those 40 days appearing to everybody. Everybody who had followed him, right? He appeared to them. Clearly, he appeared to so many that if it turned out he left four guys out, that would be weird. Now, we don't know for sure he appeared to everybody, but he appeared to so many, it might as well have been everybody. What was he doing? Well, we get a hint from the story of the two guys on the road to Emmaus, who we don't even know their names. There are two more of the thousands of people that he appeared to during his resurrection. And when he's with them, the, the fellows report that he explained everything about himself from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. In other words, 
This is who the Messiah is. This is what the Old Testament text predicted. And this is how this Jesus fulfills it. Now, the guys on the road to Emmaus don't even know it's Jesus talking to them. He's disguised himself in some way. And he's toying with them a little bit, having a game here. Okay, Sort of playing Socratic dialectic. Question and answer. And by the time they get back home, they are just astonished at what they've learned. And then, of course, he does the Eucharistic breaking of the bread. And then he vanishes away. Off to the next people. So he seems to have spent a lot of time going through a teaching ministry to help them get it. Because remember, just you know, at the upper room, just before the Garden, Garden of Gethsemane and, and the crucifixion, he's having those discourses with his 12 guys, right? And Philip asks this question. Philip says, well, uh, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And Jesus looks at him like, what? How have I been with you this long? And you say to me, show us the Father. Don't you know I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? Philip, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And he's like, good God, it's been three years. They still don't get the first things, right? They're very confused. And then look what happens the day of Pentecost. Right? Day of Pentecost, Peter gets out there. Peter, who denied Jesus three times just 40-some days earlier, right? And he gives a sermon of sermons that knocks your socks off. 5,000 people convert. And then in the succeeding weeks, you can see through the book of Acts, Peter's giving these amazing sermons. I mean, these are extraordinary. Weaving together the Old Testament history and traditions and putting the screws to the people that just crucified him, saying, look, we killed the Messiah. This is bad news for us, except it's good news. Here's why. And he offers the gospel and the love of God. How did that transformation happen? Well, Jesus had spent 40 days teaching them. All right, helping them to understand what it was all about, what it really meant, because the Jews had a conception of who the Messiah was, and the actual truth of the matter was much deeper and richer than they had anticipated. Notice that there was no Bible. Jesus didn't leave a book behind. He left witnesses to what he had said and to what he had did. done. Witnesses authorized by him to pass down his revelation to the world. The only scriptures was the Hebrew Bible, what we now call the Old Testament. He didn't leave a book. He left men, his apostles. And they were commissioned to head out into the world and teach everything that he had taught and to baptize in his name, essentially to start the church. So we start with the church being apostolic. Its foundation is this apostolic teaching and Jesus sending them out. Apostoloi in Greek means the sent ones. Hence, the apostles are the ones commissioned by Jesus with this mission. Now, in the first 20 years of the church, there's no book. There's no book at all. What began to happen was people got together and they collected and remembered what they called the, quote-unquote, sayings of Jesus. And, you know, you might have been at uh, Galilee and you might have been in Nazareth and you might have been at, you know, somewhere else in Samaria and you're like, oh yeah, I remember when he said this, and he said this, and that's similar, because what Jesus seems to have done is kind of what we'd see in a political stump speech. You know, you have a certain thing you say a lot of times in different places, because in the different Gospels, we get variations on the way in which he said it, which it sounds like he'd had certain main conceptions, like the Beatitudes, this teaching that he would do multiple times. And so what happened was the people collected the sayings, and they had little ditties and little poems, and sometimes in songs, you know, that sort of alliteration, these sorts of things, to try to remember what these sayings were. But again, notice, 
No book. One of the earliest texts we have from the Christian era is a book called the Didache. Didasco in Greek means to teach. So the Didache, the Didasco, the teaching, is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it's essentially a book that says, look, here's what we Christians do. There's the way of life. And it lays out a collection of the sayings of Jesus. All about life, love, and goodness. And then it says, by contrast, there's the way of death. And again, it's all these sayings of Jesus collected that have to do with sin, death, and evil. And then it says, and this is what we Christians do, Eucharist, baptism. Okay, The core of our faith in terms of what is to be done. Again, no Bible. No New Testament text. And then the apostles themselves also formulate a creed to say this isn't only what we do as you find in the Didache, but this is what we think. And take a look at the other side of your page. This is the famous original creed of the church called the Apostles' Creed. Let's read that together, all together. Ready? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So, this is what the church had. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's because of what we Catholics like to say. We say the church wrote the Bible. Now, think about that. If you're a cradle Catholic, you're like, well, obviously. If you come from a Protestant tradition, you're like, what? Right? See, I grew up as a Baptist, and I know like four of you were also Baptists, and some of you come from other groups. And we were all thinking this doctrine from Luther called sola scriptura. Right? It's the foundational thing is the New Testament. Scripture alone is our authority. And yet here the apostles, for 20 years, teaching with authority from Jesus, and Jesus didn't leave a book. The book isn't even written yet. In fact, the book only gets its authority from the men, from the apostles. So we don't believe in sola scriptura. We believe in sola veritas. You say, well, what is veritas? I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting my Latin. Truth. We believe what's true. And truth needn't just come from the scriptures. Truth comes from many sources. It also comes from natural reason and from mathematics, and from history. And within the tradition of the church, Jesus left a deposit. That's the way we like to think of it. A deposit. Think of it like, um, did you hear about what Ben Franklin did? In his will, I think he left $200 and put it in a bank in Philadelphia. And it, he left, or maybe it was $500, maybe it was $500. And the rule was, nobody could touch it for 200 years. And if Philadelphia and if the Republic was still in existence, then it could be used. So finally, you know, in the, what, 1980s, 1990s, somebody realized, ho, ho, the 200 years is up. And it had this enormous interest, millions of dollars. And then they, you know, used it for libraries or something noble. That's what Jesus did. Jesus left a deposit, okay? This information, this practices of how to live, 
examples, and he instituted men to teach, exemplify, interpret, and take everything else, compound it together, and to transmit that information. So we think of, and the way we talk about it is, Jesus left this tradition, which is transmitted, yes, through the New Testament texts, but also through the liturgy. The liturgy is extremely ancient. And you can learn things in the liturgy that you don't necessarily find in the New Testament, in the creeds of the church. The creeds of the church contain terms and ideas that are not explicitly found in the New Testament, like the word Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere found in the New Testament. But it's true. A church council had to figure this out. They knew all the things the scriptures told us and Jesus told us and the apostles told us about the Holy Spirit, about the Son of God, right? About the Father. And they thought it through and they said, what are the implications of all this? How does this work? And they finally said, aha, it has to be three persons and one divine substance. Let's call that Trinity. And that's what they did. And notice they were authorized by Jesus to do this. Jesus did not leave a blueprint for how everything was supposed to be figured out. He didn't leave a blueprint for how the church was supposed to get along with the state. Didn't do that. He didn't leave a diagram for how the church was supposed to be structured. Didn't do that either. Why? Well, think about what the church is. The church is the world's first multi-international, actually it's better to call it transnational organization that takes in every nation and ethnicity and says those are really irrelevant factors. We're talking about something that's even bigger. And here's the shocker that it survived, right? Fortunately, as we know, it's divine, so it's going to survive. But that's an amazing thing. No one had ever done anything like this before. And here's this new thing, and it had to be able to be flexible. Because at one point, you have the Roman Empire. Next thing you turn around, the empire falls, and you've got barbarians. Imagine trying to be the church and relate first to a civil empire and then to the barbarians. And then think of all the things that happened later, right? You had Vikings and you have republics and you have democracies and you have invasions from the east. I mean, it's shocking all the different things. And so the church has to be super flexible, able to maneuver. And so what did Jesus give? He gave these offices from the church. It's not a simple structure. It's not a clear blueprint. And what comes with that is some mistakes. All right, some mistakes. Now, a problem emerged very quickly when the church started. And that problem was the fact that at Pentecost, if you read the text carefully, it takes place in Jerusalem during the Passover, just after the Passover. So Jerusalem is chock full of Jews who come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they come from all over the empire. They convert to the faith, 5,000 in one day, and more after that, and then they go home. And they bring this new faith, this vibrancy with them, and they start telling people. At first, every single person in the church is Jewish. And so they have the idea that, well, this is, you know, this is the fulfillment of Judaism, and now we are, you know, Christian Jews. But they did some different things. They started meeting on Sunday rather than Saturday. But sometimes they still met on Saturday too. <laughs> they kept the Jewish laws. 
about, you know, what you can eat. St. Peter and the guys didn't say, all right, let's get into bacon. You would say, I'm in for the bacon, but that's because you know how bacon tastes, right? <laughs> they did not know. So they were puzzled when things started to happen. All of a sudden, the gospel seems to come out to the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, remember, are half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And everyone had bad feelings toward the Samaritans. That's why when Jesus went to Samaria and talked to the Samaritan woman, it was such a huge deal. Not only was he talking to people that were half-breeds in their opinion, right, biracials, but he was talking to a woman. Jesus had a way of breaking all the conventions, that men did not talk to women in that way alone. But Jesus did, because he loved everybody. And so when Peter goes and gives the gospel to the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And they're like, whoa, apparently the Samaritans are in. So we have to have a church that includes Samaritans? And the guys, the apostles, like, well, you know, he did go to Samaria. Oh, yeah, it's true. We got to include them somehow. Well, they're half Jewish, right? I mean, that's good. That's good. And then there were the people that followed John. And some of those were not even exactly Jews. And the Holy Spirit found them. And then the craziest thing, Peter is where? Maybe in Antioch somewhere. I can't remember, Caesarea. And he's asleep up on the roof because that's where you took naps with the breeze. And he has a vision. And in the vision, there's this enormous sheet. And in the sheet are all these animals, like a zoo full of animals. Many of them are the kinds of animals that as a good Jew you would eat. Many of them are the kind of animals as a good Jew you would not eat. There are probably lobsters in there, right? Pigs, all these delicious things that as Americans, you're like, baby, let's eat these things. But Peter's like, well, you know, this is weird. Then in the vision, he hears this voice, eat. He's like, sorry, I'm a Jew. I do not eat this stuff. Eat. And Peter realizes something is being told to me here. And as he wakes up and he's mulling this over, they're all clean now. He gets a message. And get this, a Roman centurion, a military officer of Rome. Remember, the Romans had just executed Jesus. Nails right to the rest, right? A Roman centurion from the same legion that put Jesus down sends a message and says to him, I want to hear about the gospel. I want to know about this Jesus. Peter's like, he thinks, I just had this vision of a sheet. Hmm. Is it possible that even Romans can come into the church? Romans? The sworn enemies of Israel? So he goes over there and he preaches the gospel. And this guy, the centurion, his whole household, they all convert, they become baptized, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them. And remember, at this early time, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They all spoke in tongues like they did at Pentecost. Because the prophet Joel taught that the gift of tongues would come down as a sign to the Jews of the authenticity of what was to come. And each time, Peter inaugurates the expansion of the gospel to these new groups. And so now you have all these Gentiles in the church. That's us. Anyone who's a non-Jew, Gentile, in the old tongues, they would call them Greeks. We would all be Greeks. And then you've got this problem. Well, are the Greeks supposed to become Jews? Do they have to follow these rules? Or if you're Jewish and a Christian, do you, can you stop following the rules? Can you become a Christian and eat bacon now? How do you figure this out? And the church was very confused. And if you read the book of Acts, you can see this controversy is a very hot controversy. And St. Paul and St. James are writing their early letters confronting this problem, explaining, no, 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 Gentiles do not have to become Jews. Why? Because the church fulfills all the ceremonial elements of Judaism. So in Judaism, you have circumcision. 
But that's been fulfilled by a new rite, the rite of baptism. Right? In Judaism, you have Yom Kippur, and you have the Passover meal. We don't celebrate the Passover. Right? Because the Passover in the sacrificial system, which was an annual sacrifice of killing a lamb, has been fulfilled by the one lamb, right? The Lamb of God. And so we celebrate the Eucharist and, of course, Easter. So as Catholics, we don't do what some of the, some a little bit odd, but strange evangelical groups do, where they actually think that to be Christian is to be Jewish, and they try to reincorporate all the Jewish feasts into their practices. We do not do that. Jews feel a little bit insulted by this, and you can see why. Now, if a Jewish friend of yours invites you to participate in one of these things, then of course, you know, take advantage of that. But we are not Jews, we are Gentiles who become Christians. And if you meet Jews who become Christians, we're all members of one body. Because eventually, okay, the church began to understand the doctrine of universality. Or, the word for universality was Catholicity. The word Catholic just means universal. The church applies to everybody. And the controversy early on in the church between Gentiles and Jews becomes a model for us for all the other future controversies that you would get. All the other conflicts between different groups. And the idea is, if the Jews and the Gentiles can figure out how to be one body in Christ, then surely other conflicts you can. And I will tell you, I remember when I first started going to Catholic churches, I was kind of surprised. I remember I was in Nashville, and I was at a conference, and I went to Mass uh, at the cathedral there, and I walk into this building, and I notice I see black people and white people, rich people and poor people, families filled with kids, old people. I see a cross-section of people. And I remembered how in other groups that I'd been with, because I have a long, ridiculous history, okay, you kind of got different socioeconomic classes that attached to different groups. But in the, the church, everybody seemed to be there. And I've seen this again and again and again in Catholic churches. Why? Because everybody goes there. It applies to everybody. Everyone understand? <coughs> So, the new rule that St. Paul explains is the rule of love. If you are a Gentile Christian and you have friends who don't eat certain things because they consider them to be unclean, sacrifice to idols, that was the big issue at the time, not a big problem anymore, but you know, back then, then out of love you would not serve that food to them. Makes sense. When St. Paul went back to Jerusalem, he took a Jewish vow, shaved his head, and did Jewish rituals, even though he's an apostle of Jesus. Why? Because he's still ethnically a Jew. He's still culturally a Jew. But the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish law, he was no longer bound by. But he bound himself to them voluntarily in order to show respect and love for his Jewish friends, his Jewish neighbors. So love becomes the operating principle. We believe that all things are clean. Every single thing that God made is good. And as long as we receive it with thanksgiving and use it appropriately, it's good. We no longer define the holy and the unholy by reference to things being clean and unclean. We now define the holy and the unholy by reference to what? What do you think?
What makes us holy like God? What have we learned? Yes. This is how we are marked out and to be known. Not for being strange in weird ways, not really oddball humans, no, but by an extraordinary humanity, by love and virtue, and by something else, this plus our sacraments, the most holy of which is, exactly, we even call it the Holy Eucharist, don't we? So you see how what we have emerging here? We have a church that's one. There are multiple churches. not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It's one church. There's the oneness. It's Catholic. It's holy. And it is apostolic. Founded and authorized by the apostles. All right. So that's the first 20 years. In the next 20 years, from about 50 to 70 AD, many things begin to happen. First of all, the church has begun to spread all over the empire because the apostles have been traveling everywhere. Persecutions have begun to arise. Initially, they're chased around by representatives of the Jews, the Jewish leadership. St. Paul, remember, had been one of these people persecuting the Christians, and then he converted, turned against the, against the persecution. And then he himself, because he turned on his old people, they, of course, went after him. Uh, but then the persecutions really intensify when the state gets involved under Nero, which, of course, you probably heard from your history books. And you know about the Great Fire of Rome and how the Christians got accused of that in 64. And that begins a series of persecutions that happened under the Roman Empire. Furthermore, something else notable happens. The church leadership realizes that they had kind of misinterpreted something Jesus had said. They all had the impression that when Jesus says, I'm coming back, he meant, I'm coming back really, really soon. So much so that in Thessalonica, St. Paul had only been there three years before he got chased. Three, not three years, three weeks. That's all he had, three weeks. And then he got chased out. So after he left, the Thessalonian Christians fell into all kinds of mistakes because they just didn't have enough information. And one of the things they thought when they heard Jesus is coming back is that this week, next week. So apparently some people quit their jobs, stopped you know, working, and I don't know, maybe they're sitting on a hill waiting for the, you know, the return of Christ. And Paul has to tell them if you read the letter, look, if you don't get back to your jobs, you're not, you don't get to eat. Don't put yourself on the rest of the church in Thessalonica expecting them to feed you. Get back to work. This is going to take a while. We don't know when he's coming back. All right? And it was partly compounded by something that Jesus said to St. John. That John in his gospel says, everyone misinterpreted this, but let me tell you what Jesus said. He did not say that I, John, would be alive when the Messiah returned. He said, even if you're still alive, you know, it could be that long. He never said that it was definitely that case. And so people misinterpreted what John had been told, and they thought that it was quick. Once they realized that, you know what, this could take a lot longer than we realized. And of course, now we realize it's taking quite a long time, right? The apostles 
thought, okay, this is interesting, right? Uh, we're all going to die out. And St. Ignatius, one of the students of St. John, says what they began to do is appointed successors to themselves. And these successors, they laid holy hands on them, and they become the bishops. Okay? The bishops carry apostolic authority to do what? To teach and work out the implications of the faith, the positive faith that Jesus gave us. And of course, because this is an apostolic authority, they also then carry out the sacraments. And the bishops start to sort of, uh, the bishops work within the Roman provincial structure and the city structure. And so you end up like with the Bishop of Antioch, the Bishop of Ephesus, you know, like, like you now, we have a Bishop of Columbus, Bishop of Toledo in the same, the same type of way. <coughs> um, and Peter, as he's thinking about this, looks around and realizes that we've got all these sayings of Jesus in collections. We've got the teaching of the 12, but what, not, what has really not happened is a clear record of what Jesus did. And once we're gone, once the eyewitnesses all die, we're going to lose the record. So Peter worked together with his scribe, whose name was Mark, and he wrote down a quick memoir. And this is what we now call Mark's Gospel. It's very quick, and it's Jesus did this and Jesus did this. What St. Peter is trying to do is give you the, the narrative history. Here's what Jesus did. You've already got the sayings of Jesus. You already know about these things. Now you have the structure in time of exactly what Jesus did. Once St. Peter did that through Mark, some of the other apostles, again, all eyewitnesses to the original events, all writing in the lifetimes of many, many people who had heard these things themselves. So this wasn't written 300 years after the fact, okay? They also began to write memoirs. St. Matthew, one of the 12, wrote a memoir called now, of course, St. Matthew's Gospel. And this was specifically, the specific mission was to persuade Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So when you read it, it's filled with these lines like, and this was meant to fulfill this prophecy, that such and such. You find this weeded throughout the entire story because his mission is to persuade Jews. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. St. Luke was the church's first historian. And St. Luke gathered a tremendous amount of data. But again, Luke wasn't there. So who's Luke's sources? Well, if you read Luke carefully, you'll notice something interesting at the beginning, right? Luke is the one who gives us the detailed information about the birth of Jesus, the events leading up to it. And throughout Luke's gospel, he'll use this little phrase, and Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. Okay? That's another way to say she remembered all this. And then when I, Luke, became her personal physician and spent all this time with her, guess what she did? She filled me in. So that's why, really, Luke's gospel is actually whose memoir? St. Mary. Mary, exactly. Which, of course, is an amazing perspective on Jesus. We already talked about Matthew. And, of course, John. You all know about John. He was there from the beginning. And John writes much later than the other ones. Luke and Matthew use the model that Peter started with, and they use that as a sort of a platform to expand. Peter sort of set the model for everything. 
John writes much later, he does not worry about St. Peter's model. And he is after very specific objectives. One, to persuade people that Jesus is really the Son of God, and B, to start really taking on the Gnostic problem, because the Gnostics had had tremendous influence on the church and were causing great trouble. So, notice what we now have. We have the Gospels, which compromise the first four books of the New Testament, and we have the Acts, because Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles to talk about what happened up until St. Paul uh, finished his uh, first, his, uh, I guess his first imprisonment. Hey, hi, Jonathan. At the same time, St. Paul and some of the other writers are writing letters to the churches. And these letters, too, are collected. And they become our New Testament scriptures. Again, how does this officially happen? It happens, one, because the apostles had authority, and everybody knew it was written by an apostle, so they, of course, imbued it with authority. But then, by the time... Uh, Maybe 100, 200, strange other books start popping out okay, that no one had ever heard of before, like the so-called Gospel of Mary, which is not the Gospel of Mary. Luke is the Gospel of Mary. The Gospel of Philip by 3400 AD, this book shows up. And the councils were asked of the church, well, what is all this stuff? How are we supposed to sort this out? And what started to happen was the Gnostics figured, hey, we need some grounding scriptures too. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll write our own versions of this that fit our theology, and we'll just put apostolic names on it, right? It's like if you uh, wanted to write a really interesting theory about the American founding, and you write it and act like it was written by John Adams. Well, you're going to get a lot more hearing than if you say it's written by Jeff Thiel. Who's the, who, who in the world is Jeff Thiel? John Adams? Now, that's interesting. So I might think I can get further by claiming it's John Adams. Nowadays, because of the nature of scholarship and history, this would be laughed out right away. But at this point, it wasn't so clear. So the councils had to recognize which books were authentic and which were surreptitious nonsense. So the, the New Testament, as we understand it, emerges through the church, written by the church, ratified by the church. You understand? Okay. All right. So. Another office. Deacons. This is one of the earliest offices to be found because here's what happened. The apostles start the church with, I mean, the Holy Spirit starts the church, but you know, you know what I'm saying. 5,000 people come in one day. They've got to baptize all these people. And then it starts to grow. And there's tremendous material needs of the people because they, people that converted started getting thrown out of the Jewish temple, sometimes losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods. And they're trying to figure out how in the world do we manage all this? And the apostles have to teach, they have to pray, and they have to do the sacraments. And then they have this enormous material need, the charity needs of the church. And they said, look, we have got to get some help. So they said, look, let's appoint some people who will focus on the material welfare of the church while we focus on the spiritual welfare of the church. And they called them, they had seven initially, and they were the deacons. All right? And we're very lucky because we have one of these deacons right here. You say, what? Deacon Menor. Yep, that's a deacon. See? That's what a deacon looks like. He is one of the original seven. He was not St. Stephen who got stoned, fortunately. Now, this is an amazing office. It's absolutely critical. And as some of you grow in your faith, you may think to yourself, oh, well, maybe I would like to become a, a deacon. 
and that's a great office. So if that's something that interests you, uh, talk to Deacon Mentor. Find out all about becoming a deacon. It doesn't require you not to be married. <laughs> you say, oh, that's good. Yes, it is. So you can be married, and you can become a deacon, and you could do all sorts of wonderful, helpful things. Then there's another office. Priests. Because just as the apostles realized they needed help to issue out the sacraments and appointed bishops to do the sacramental work that they did and to carry out the teaching ministry and deacons to do the material ministries of the church, the bishop said, good God, we're in the same boat. Okay? So the bishop of Ephesus has tens of thousands of Christians. The bishop, he's, what am I supposed to do? And so the bishop started appointing priests under themselves. And what the priests are in the New Testament, the first word is elder, because these are people that had maturity, and so they were called elders. The next word you see that emerges is presbyter. Presbyter. There's an Y in here. Pres there it is. The presbyters. The other word you find in the New Testament is pastors. Okay, the word presbyter gets shortened in English to presbyt. And of course, presbyt, when you drop out the B, what do you get? Priest. And so that's where we get the emergence of our priests. The priests are the elders, are the presbyters in this early time period. And so these people work under the bishop and carry out the bishop's sacramental tasks. And so that's why you have the structure of the church now where you have these different dioceses, which are like the old Roman provinces, and each one has a bishop in there. And the bishop then has all these priests to um, you know, carry out the sacramental ministry and the teaching, and then under them they have all these deacons, hopefully, who can help support this. Basically, the church is a structure of offices. And not like, you know, office like office building. Offices that Jesus and the church institutes. And this is this whole thing. What the structure of the diocese should be and whether you should have this organization or this. No blueprint whatsoever. Nothing. Why? Because it has to be organic. It has to be flexible. In fact, the church is sometimes likened to a body. An organic unity which has a lot of flexibility, especially when you add all of us. We don't have offices. We're just us. All of us. And we're the ones who are actually the hands, the eyes, the feet. We are the body of Christ. We're the ones who are supposed to be used all the skills and gifts that we have to work love through that for the sake of the church. All right, any questions about these four offices and how this is set up in a structure of men, not books, and not a static structure that's inflexible? All right, one last office. You probably wondered about this one. Pope. What about the Pope? Well, there's something curious that happens if you read the um, first century Christian text. I've read all of them. There's not that many. This isn't hard. Reading past the 200s, that's when it gets hard. Okay? But before that, you can read it all. It's, it's wonderful. 
And there's this letter by this bishop of Rome, the third bishop of Rome, whose name is Clement. And he writes a letter to the church of Corinth. And it's very interesting because Corinth is a different city in a different diocese, different bishop. And he lets them have it. I mean, he really chastises them. Now, you would expect the bishop of Ephesus to deal with the Ephesians. You'd expect the Corinthian bishops to deal with the Corinthians. And part of the problem was they had dumped their bishop. That's part of the problem. But what is the bishop of Rome doing moving outside his area, right, and talking to Christians in a different area? Well, nobody thought this was surprising. Why? Because Rome becomes the location of, where's Peter? St. Peter. Peter leaves Jerusalem. It gets very hot for the apostles. And then, of course, you remember the Jews revolt and the Christians run. That's part of the reason the Christians didn't get wiped out. They run, and then the Roman legions come down and destroy Jerusalem in about 69, 70, 71 AD. Just before that, Peter and Paul are both in Rome, and Peter becomes the bishop of Rome. His successor becomes the bishop of Rome. His successor, Clement, becomes the bishop of Rome. But the bishop of Rome, Peter, is different from the other bishops. Why? Well, Jesus said some really strange things to St. Peter, right? And you probably heard this text, right? You are Peter, upon this rock I shall build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus gives him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind in earth is bound in heaven. Now, this language of keys and binding and loosing, he says to no other person except St. Peter. This isn't written in the plural to the other apostles. It's to Peter. And this is, we would now call it, monarchial language. Keep in mind, Catholicism is a monarchy. It's not a political monarchy. It's a spiritual monarchy. We have a king, Jesus. Now the king is away, so we kind of miss him. In the meantime, we have a steward of the king, somebody who represents the king. Sometimes we call him a representative, and the word for representative is vicar, right? Who is that vicar? It's the person Jesus appointed, Peter. This person operates as a kind of a father figure for all the other apostles. And you can see how Peter did that from the very beginning. He was in the leadership position. He's the one who preaches at Pentecost. He's the one who leads the apostles. He's the one that spreads the gospel to each new group and authenticates it. At the first council, he's the one who gives the sense of how we ought to handle the Jewish-Gentile uh, controversy. And St. Peter is the one that everybody goes to when there's a conflict or a question. In order to get ratified as an apostle, Paul had to be presented to Peter, and everyone waited to see what Peter would say. And Peter said, dude, this guy's all right. They're like, oh, okay, that's good. In fact, Peter in one of his letters reminds everybody, Paul is legit and says, watch out. His work is very complex theoretically. Don't screw it up. It'll cause you real problems. But it requires this fatherly role. And that's what Peter has. Now you say, why are you using the word father? Because Pope is father, right? Papa. The Pope is simply one of the bishops, but of a specific bishop from a direct line that comes from St. Peter. Remember what I told you. The apostles handed on their authority through the laying out of hands to the next generation. They in turn to the next generation, causing the succession, it's called the apostolic succession, to carry on. 
All the bishops have this apostolic succession. The bishop of Columbus, if you ever get to meet him, which they will, right? Don't they actually meet him at one of these things? Very soon. Yes. You will see a person who actually has a direct line from the original 12 apostles. So if that kind of amazes you, it should. All right? But if you ever get to meet Pope Francis, all right, I know you're probably thinking about other things, but one of the things you might enter your mind, okay, the Popes are truly astonishing. One of the things that's really amazing is that line is the original line from St. Peter himself. And that line carries with it St. Peter's authority to be the final arbiter on questions of how do we Christians practice, what do we do, and what do we Christians believe. There has to be somebody who ultimately sorts this out. And so the answer <coughs> is the Pope. So there's only one Pope. There's many bishops. Everyone understand? Any questions about that? This is a big deal. If you become Catholic, you kind of got to accept the Pope. And I imagine since you're in here, probably you've sort of sorted this one out. It took me 35 years to finally get this down. I know I'm a slow learner. You're like, this is not easy, difficult. This is easy. <laughs> Once the church was officially ratified by the empire, um, once the Edict of Milan was passed under Constantine, 400 years later, from the beginning, the um, pagan post of high priest of Rome was now a Christian office, and that title, Julius Caesar had held it, you know, 444 years prior. Um, that post is called Pontifex Maximus, and this was awarded as a title. It was conferred by the emperor on the pope because he now was the high priest of Rome. And the Pope maintains this title. Okay, the Roman emperors are gone, the legions are gone, the consuls are gone. The Senate, they have a form of the Senate, but that's all that's left. But the Pontifex Maximus continues. <laughs> all right, now, no blueprint. There's no blueprint. When Constantine becomes emperor, and all of a sudden the church has permission to live and do things, there's no blueprint how they're supposed to operate. They had never used the sword to confer, force people to become uh, Christians. 400 years, they had no political power. And in spite of that, the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the empire. In Rome alone, if you ever go to Rome, get underground and take a look at one of the catacomb sets. There's 70 sets each one multiple miles long, each one with tens and tens of thousands of burials. We're talking millions of Christian graves. Rome itself only had a million people in it. So in just 400 years, millions of Christian burials just in the city of Rome. This is why we say correctly that the Christians took over this empire, not by political power, not by force of arms, although Constantine's thing was a battle between emperors, but the Christian thing came later for him. It was by the power of the faith, its truth and its love against paganism. But then the barbarians' invasions happen, right? They just finally get liberation from Roman persecution, and then the Visigoths come in and sack Rome, and then it's just one thing after another, right? Gaul gets hit by the Germans, and then this happens over here, and the Dacians come flying through. Oh, it was a disaster. And if you can imagine, like, imagine that America had ascendancy for like 400 years and then in just a few short years, suddenly the Chinese overrun Europe and overrun the United States, and all of a sudden there's Chinese everywhere. 
You'd be like, what just happened? Well, you're so used to American and European power being a stabilizing influence, right? Which has only really been since the formation of NATO post-World War II. That's a very short time. The Romans had had this authority and the Pax Romana for 400 years from the time of Augustus. And before that, they had a lot of influence. It all fell apart, and the world was shocked. The Christians were shocked. St. Augustine, a bishop of Hippo at the time in Africa, is writing a book called The City of God to say, look, the church still stands. If the city of Rome falls, that's the city of man. That's not the end of the church. The church remains. But the problem was the civil structures of Rome collapsed. The governors ran. The legions were destroyed. And all of a sudden, you have these places where everybody says, well, we have no governing authority, and who do they look to? The bishop. In many places, the bishops became de facto mayors, de facto governors. By the time the barbarian invasions were over, the city of Rome had been reduced from a million people to 10,000. That's how devastating the invasions were. Almost all of the Christian graves had been broken into. The barbarians looted them looking for gold as though the Christians had money but they tore apart 98% of those graves trying to find money. It was an absolute devastation on a scale. It's hard even to imagine. And what was left of Rome? A complete ruin and a few people. And guess who was still there? The Bishop of Rome, the Pope. He didn't leave. He didn't leave. He tried to protect the city. He went out and talked to Attila the Hun and got him to turn back. But eventually, it all fell apart. And all that's left in Rome, now a complete backwater. Nobody wanted to be in Rome, except the Pope. He's it. And all of a sudden, he's not just a mayor. He's a king, literally. He becomes the king of the city of Rome. Now, if you think about the connection between the church and the state, you know, as Americans, we have certain ideas. Separation of church and state, right? There's no separation of church and state doctrine in the New Testament. This is an American idea that we developed for our Constitution because we think it works better to avoid certain problems. But you could have other organizations and workings out where you have the church intermixed, like say in the English Constitution. Nothing to stop that. And the church had no idea how best to connect the political. And sometimes it got crazy, like during the Renaissance when you had papal armies marching off to do war with other city-states. You think, boy, that sounds like maybe there's too much of a mix. Could be. The Pope's army was, by the way, defeated badly, and he retreated back to Rome. All right? But nothing says that that's intrinsically problematic, right? It's hard to say. We just, it's not very clear. It's, taking, it's taken a long time for us to get to the point where we are now. But remember, what you see now with the Vatican and the papacy and how that works is just the way it is right now. That could change again. We just don't know. So, understand this intrinsic flexibility. Now, if you want to read about the history of the church in those first four, 450 years to the Edict of Milan, there's a great book by a fellow named Eusebius. He's the first official historian, meaning official by the Roman Empire. Eusebius. He wrote a book called The Ecclesiastical History, and it is wonderful read. I mean, riveting. I love that book. So, if you like history and you want to read this, read this book. It's terrific. All right, 
So we could talk a lot about the history of the church, and I, which I don't want to get into the entire history because, well, I'm not trained as a historian technically, you understand? So it's a little bit over, over my head. But I do want to talk a little bit about the Reformation because the Reformation is the first major split, shattering holy, Catholic, apostolic, one church. What happened? How did this happen? And what did the church do to bring this about? Because unfortunately, this is what happened. Okay? The church did help bring this about. So think back in your histories. Do you remember how England and France are being hit by these Viking raids from about, mm, what, 870 AD, right, to maybe 1,000? And the Vikings are hitting all over the place. Uh, there's a, some sort of environmental disaster happened in the Dark Ages, literally darkening the sky. And then you also had repeated arisings of the plague, the bubonic plague. And the plague killed anywhere from 50 to 80% of the people in cities all over Europe. Whole cities were just empty. Just everybody dead. Like the, the you know our sci-fi movies where you have uh, Ebola come in and it kills all these people? This was the reality of the situation. But here they had no doctors really, you know, they didn't have nursing staffs. The first responders, who do you think the first responders were? The church, right? The nuns come out to help with the sick, right? The priest comes tries to help to comfort the people. And with the plague, does the, is the plague a respecter of persons? Do they respect clergy? No. So the clergy died in higher rates. Get this. The clergy died at a rate of 90%. Now think about the impact that should have. An organization whose fundamental structure is offices. The kings... Who, this was, of course, the time of kings. They began to appoint bishops, which is not what's supposed to happen. The pope's supposed to appoint the bishops. And they started appointing bishops on the, on the basis of political favoritism. And so all of a sudden, you started to see a lot of corruption begin to emerge in the way these bishops lived. And any of the horror stories you've heard are true. <laughs> Did you have bishops that had multiple children? Yes. That had multiple mistresses? Absolutely. That functioned as dukes and lorded it over their people because their father was Duke so-and-so and they became a, a bishop duke? Yes, absolutely. You say, did this get into the church itself the, at the Vatican? Yes, it did. During the Renaissance, there was one pope who came in, and in the first year, he had 60-course dinners nearly every single night, and there was bands and hookers, the whole nine yards. Every single night, in one year, he bankrupted the entire treasury of the Vatican. And that's when they said, darn, we need money. Hey, let's start this indulgence program. Now, if you were you know, a normal guy at, you know, in France or Spain or Germany, you would think, boy, what is going on? This is really bad, right? You know, you know how we react to scandal. Now, well, some of them started to talk about it. People like Luther. But Luther wasn't the only one. People were talking about it all over the place. Now, while this is all going on, parish here, parish there, parish everywhere, the priest is doing his job. Baptisms, you know, marriages, funerals, the Eucharist, the church year. We, the ordinary people, are continuing on, just doing what we do. The real living church is really not that affected. The hierarchy, big problems. And once these challenges started to come, the organization within some of the states began to splinter, and they said, this can't be right. 
And the reaction to this by this church hierarchy that was full of problems was, of course, to be resistant. And that, together with extremely complex politics between the Holy Roman Empire and a bunch of other things, started to lead to fractures, political, theological fractures. These developed and got worse and worse for 100 years, during which time the church got its act together. And while this Reformation was going on, the church began its own internal review, which we now call the Counter-Reformation. And they started to fix many, many, many of these problems. Notice, this is very important. Even while you had some really lousy popes, I mean, corrupt to the core, they never jumped on St. Peter's chair and started issuing new edicts. Never. It's amazing how, in spite of all of their problems, they never even attempted to do something like this. And when you think about it, it's almost miraculous, right? In fact, the church would say it is miraculous. That's why we have the Holy Spirit in the church. He wouldn't let him get away with it. Right? And if you remember, there's a, story, a really interesting story from the Hebrew Bible about a fellow named Balaam, who was a pagan prophet, who'd been hired by a local king to go and curse the Israelites. Okay, the Israelites were becoming a problem, and this guy's like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll put a curse on these people. And Balaam was your local curse expert. So they hire Balaam to put a curse on them. He runs out there, and he's just about to, I curse the Israelites. And as he begins to talk, he says, I bless the Israelites. And he's like, how did I say that? He's like, darn, it said the wrong thing. I think two or three times he tried to curse the Israelites. And every time he tried, blessings came out instead. He was overcome by the Holy Spirit. You see what was happening? It works the other way, too. Sometimes you have these bad people in offices who do wrong things. But the fundamental order of the church in its holy sacraments and the teaching which comes from Jesus is unaffected. And so this is what we need to understand. There are some really bad things that have happened in the church. We deal with bad things right now, which we are not proud of. We're horrified. But we, the people in the church, we continue on. And we have good priests, and we have good bishops. We got an amazing pope. We've been so blessed for our last three popes, right? Pope John Paul. I mean, you notice how each pope reflects some aspect of Jesus? Right? Pope John Paul brought this amazing holiness. Yeah? Pope Benedict, faith and truth. Amazing teacher. And what do we get in Pope Francis? Love. Right? Amazing love. This stellar example. That's what these guys are supposed to do, reflecting this. And that's what we've been blessed with. So the church goes through ups and downs, reformation and counter-reformation. But here was the problem. To reform, the reformers, the Protestants, they protested. But look at the word reform. It's made up of two words, to reform. The Protestants left. Once the church fixed itself, why didn't they reform? In other words, why didn't they go back? This haunted me as a Protestant. It's one of the reasons I decided, you know, I need to get up with my feet and walk back into the church. Can't be a reformer unless you reform. Right? It's very interesting. The Reformation was not a Reformation. The Reformation was a revolution. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> All right. Questions.
periodically, you know, they'll do surveys or census or whatever, and they'll talk about, like, the number of Protestants versus the Catholic Church, and um, it's just interesting to me that there's such a growth, suppose, according to the numbers that they you know, will publicize, in the Protestant Church, whereas the Church, the Catholic Church, the true Church, doesn't seem to have that growth or that expansion. It just seems like an interesting time to me right now. Um, well, it really depends on where you're talking about. The church has had momentous growth at different times in different places. And sometimes the church kind of gets to a static point and its evangelization method seems to die down and its reproductive method seems to go up. There's a strategy in the church. We out-reproduce them. And sometimes, mm -hmm, sometimes that becomes too much, right? Maybe we should be, in addition to doing what the Jesuits used to do, which is the apostles sent out and evangelized. But then you look at the places where the gospel has really not been able to have a huge impact historically, and that's where you see these surges, not just in Protestantism, but in the Catholicism, like in China. The Chinese are very uneasy about the growth of the church. The Communist Party realizes this is a problem. And the church, super flexible, right? The Communist Party wants authority and veto power over who the bishops are, right? And you got out some purists say, well, we can't have that. And the popes are like, hey, we're in there. We're there, man. Who cares? Right? We'll work it out. We can work with the political power. And the church has a real pragmatic flexibility with all these different kinds of regimes. Sometimes you got to keep in mind that the, there's strategy going on with the Pope, all right? And so there's definitely growth happening in those places. And in other places, look what happened when the, um, the uh, New World was found. Look at the mass conversion. All of Central and South America is all Catholic now. There's only a few people who worship the old gods of the Inca and the Aztec. You've got a few purists that are out in the hills. But they're all Catholics. Mm, another one, yes. <laughs> but my my aunt and uncle, they were Southern Baptist missionaries. And yep. most of my um, childhood, they were in um, Costa Rica and Chile yep. and Paraguay. So they converting Catholics, not converting the Indians who are who are worshiping the old gods still. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a puzzle. You might think, well, why would they view not view the, the Catholics as allies? But the truth is, they almost, it's rare that you find Protestants see Catholics as allies until you get into political and moral issues. And then, like on the abortion lines, you'll find Catholic and Protestant saying, oh, we have the same views about human beings. And then they start to talk and they realize, wow, you know, there's a lot of things in common. So it's true. You have these missionaries going down there from Protestant groups convert, trying to convert Catholics off of Catholicism. And sometimes the Catholics don't know enough to understand, you know, and they get converted off um, but yeah I mean I'm sure there's places where it's, it's worse than others but I think the primary reason for this is that we don't properly form people and teach them one of the things you find with a cradle religion is that if you grow up in it you grow up in it as something you do not as something you understand so if you convert into the faith like you know many of you are doing that's why you're here well, that's what I did all right you come in asking questions like, well, uh, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, right? Why should I be Catholic? What's the reasons for this? 
If you're born as a Catholic, you might never even think about that. And then when a Protestant comes and hits you with the particular moves that Protestants make, which you know you probably remember and I remember the ones we used, uh, you can throw a Catholic off their game if they're cradle Catholic and they haven't thought about it. But things have started to change, and it started to change, frankly, under John Paul II. Oh, John Paul, no, he's not a great, now he's a saint, right? Isn't he saying it now? Saint John Paul, okay? It began to change, because I remember when I was in college, I was a Baptist, but I went to the University of Scranton, a Jesuit school, and I met my first, what I would call, really educated Catholics. I was stunned. I had never in my life met Catholics who knew what they were doing. And there were Catholics having Bible studies. I was like, what? We have the Bible in our side. We are the Protestants. Catholics like read encyclicals and papal stuff, stuff they just made up. We have the Bible. Lo and behold, the Catholics were reading the Bible, and the Protestants were not reading the popes. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I started to read St. Thomas Aquinas and these other people, and you can imagine the dominoes started moving. So things have started to change. There is a shift. There is a, a resurgence of teaching. And you can see there's... Um, there's even presses, like Ascension Press, if you've ever heard of them. It's a Catholic press. And they create massive teaching materials for the churches with video series and books that are accessible so that people can understand their faith and understand not you know, the Catholic distinctives, you know, what makes you Catholic, but also the foundations of the faith and how it all hooks together. Because by the, when we get to sacraments, which we're going to get into detail in our, you know, after we come back from Christmas, I mean, just to give you a preview so you'll understand what I mean. Every single sacrament is a combination of spirit and matter. Now, what is human nature? A combination of spirit and matter. What is the incarnation? Spirit and matter. How do human beings function? Through the body. So should it be a surprise that the way God administers grace is through that merger? It shouldn't be a surprise at all. Right? Once you understand the theory, what we've been working on this whole time, then the sacraments and why we have sacraments, it's completely ob well, obvious. How could it be otherwise? Right? So with you have the right kind of foundation, then those distinctive things suddenly just all fall out of it. It all makes sense. Whereas if you start with certain Protestant ideals that all that matters is the spirit, not the body, then saying things like, well, fasting, well, why fast? You should have purity of heart and just pray. Right? We're like, well, no, the matter of prayer is the fast. So we have the spirit of prayer, but we also have the physicality of prayer. The two come together, right? In every single Catholic thing, marriage, right? How can you have just the spirit of marriage and not the body, right? That would be very weird, right? So all the Eucharist, the same thing. It's always a fully human thing. What Protestants do is they reduce it off try to move it always to that so-called purely spiritual side. And that attracts certain people who are looking for something simple, what they view as something authentic, something that appeals to the inner man. But the church is bigger than just the inner man. It's the human person. And it's big and it's complex. And that's part of the reason why it's hard sometimes for people not properly formed, not properly taught. It makes it easier for them to be, be pulled off in the, you know, into a, a Protestant group. And your personal... Lord, you know, personal Lord. Yeah, it becomes a God and me, a religion, uh, when the church isn't, there's really no God in me. It's us. Yeah, Deacon, you were going to chime in. I was in. just going to write kind of towards the middle bottom of the board there. It says, we are the hands, the eyes, and the feet. 
that's what that's what we're called to do. So you know, it's our responsibility, opportunity to go out and to spread this. And it doesn't mean you have to stand on the street corner on a soapbox and preach fire and brimstone, but it's just like you talk about. It's like how we live and how we live our lives. And the other thing that Dr. Teal and I were talking about when we came in the door is, um, this is what you guys could, a couple things you guys could help with over time. Um, one is, while RCIA is for the people who are exploring and searching and wanting to maybe become Catholic, the material is, this is how we get formed. All of us Catholics need to come here and hear this stuff and hear it again and hear it again so that we can take it out and be conversable. And scripture studies and the uh, uh, breaking open of the word or understanding the sacraments, the ascension press things, we're going to be doing those. But we, it can't just be Father Vince or it can't just be me. It's got to be you guys helping to lead those things because it'll never get done if it's just the, the three offices that we talked about, the hierarchy. It's got to be the rest of us. Right. Every single one of you that has come to the end of this class said in our first day when we had our wine and cheese party, it was a Catholic you knew who attracted you to the faith. Not a priest, not a bishop, not a deacon, a fellow person, just an person, ordinary person. And that is the nature of the transmission. It's cells in the body reproducing themselves in other cells. So all of you are matter, spirit, composites. You're human beings. And the Spirit of God... Once you become uh, confirmed right, and baptized, will have an impact on you. And you, your specific and unique set of talents will then be infused with faith, hope, and love, charity. And then it will be a wonder to see what you do. And we can't define that. We, who knows? You know? She will be a specific, majestic exemplar of divine love Differently from her, differently from her, differently from her. All of us will be different. So the deacon wants us to be open to how that love is going to manifest. Some people it will be, you know, very formal things like, well, I work on the church council or the altar guild or something, right? You know, something. Other people will be very dynamic like, well, you know, I'm going to be working with the poor in the soup kitchens. Other people will be people that are just brilliant money makers, and, you know, I, I have no eye for business whatsoever. But some of you might be, well, business is my thing, you know? And so you will be like, you could produce cash. You know, we got to pay these church people too, right? Uh, all these different capabilities. Some of you will become cooks. Some of you will, all different things. And those gifts are the way in which the church works. So the bishops and the apostles are the foundation of the church. We are the building. Okay, more questions? Okay. Next week, Thanksgiving, no class. Yay. Have a break. And then after that, we have two more weeks and then our Christmas break. All right, and Elisa, who's not here today because she's exhausted and has a major business thing tomorrow, uh, she will be doing those sessions on the... Bible. And remember I told you how Jesus talked to the guys from Emmaus, explained how the church fulfills the Old Testament Jewish stuff? She's going to be taking us through that. That will be, I can't wait to hear that.